If you're in the octagon here, why don't you take your seats? And if you've joined us online, uh, I just want to add my welcome to that of Dave's earlier. So glad you've joined us this afternoon. Uh, We're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 7, working from verse 17, uh, no, sorry, verse 18 onwards. And we're going to pick right up where we left off last week. Uh, So just very quickly to get up to speed in this series so far in the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus be baptized and at his baptism, the, the heavens opened and a voice come down from heaven and say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with. So Jesus at his baptism was verified as the son of God, God in human flesh come to dwell amongst us, come to rescue us, come to restore right relationship between God and humanity. And then we've seen him as we've read through the last few weeks, the last chapters as he's cleansed lepers, as he's healed the sick, as he's brought freedom to people caught up in all kinds of captivity. Even last week, we saw him raise a dead man, didn't we? Just amazing. With just a word, he raised the dead. And uh, so we've seen him traveling around, proclaiming good news, and demonstrating that he has authority. He has authority over life and death itself. And it's against that background, against all that we've read up to this point about who Jesus is and and what he's been doing and and how he's engaged with people that we're going to come to these verses today. So we're going to do what we often do. We're going to read a little chunk and then unpack it and read a little bit more and unpack it. But I need to warn you, we've got lots of verses today. We're going from 18 all the way through to 50. And so we're going to move really quickly through the first kind of 50% of that. Uh, So we're not going to dwell for long. We're going to move fast uh, because it helps set the context. It helps set the scene for where we are going to spend most of our time today. So from verse 18, we read this. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So that's all the stuff we've just been talking about that Jesus has done, yeah? The disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, that's Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that's to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, John the Baptist is in prison. He hasn't been able to witness firsthand what Jesus has been doing up to this point. He's just heard about it from his followers who've come and brought word to him in prison. And now he sends them to ask Jesus outright, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised rescuer? Are you the one who's come to restore right relationship between God and man? Now, if you remember John's story, this seems like a really odd thing for him to ask. Because it was John who baptized Jesus, and it was John who proclaimed that 
Jesus was going to come, and when Jesus did come, said, he's here. And so John was present when the heavens opened at Jesus' baptism, and the voice from heaven said, this is my own son. And so for John now to be saying, look, just like, tell me straight, are you or aren't you, seems really weird, because he seemed pretty convinced before. So why is John now questioning? Well, what's going on? These next verses that we're going to read together give us a clue of why John has begun to question. So we read from verse 21. In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, that's John's disciples, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Luke tells us that after hearing John's question, are you really the Messiah, Jesus healed a load of people. Why does Luke say that? Why did Jesus do that? Well, having at first been so sure, John had begun to question, and actually the reason he had begun to question was because of the things Jesus had been doing. Now, that might seem strange to us, but Jesus wasn't living up to John's expectation of the Messiah. He wasn't doing what John expected him to do. How often do we get ourselves in that kind of situation where we think, like, God, you're not doing what I thought you were going to. And John's now questioning, if Jesus is doing that, maybe he isn't the Messiah. Because if you remember, when you look back to chapter 3, John had said that the Messiah would bring judgment. And Jesus will bring judgment. He wasn't wrong. But here Jesus is eating with sinners, healing the sick, Forgiving sins, proclaiming good news to people, instead of judging them, he's befriending them and offering forgiveness to them. And John's like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's not what I thought it was going to look like. Are you really the one? The time for judgment will come, but it's not yet. And Jesus' response to John is so lovely, isn't it? Instead of getting frustrated at him or berating him or going, John, you should have understood this was what it would be like. Don't you know the scriptures? Instead of getting frustrated or having a go at him for his misunderstanding, he's so gentle and patient, isn't he? Because instead of rebuking him, he reassures him. He performs some more amazing miracles. And then he says to John's disciples, go back and tell him what you've seen. And he gives a list of the things they've seen. And that list reads kind of like, well, yeah, that's what Jesus has been doing to us. We read it and we go, oh, he's just saying what he's been doing. But actually, Jesus chooses his words carefully. This comment that Jesus gives to John's disciples to take back to him is is kind of like a, it's a, it's a selection of quotes, almost, from the book of Isaiah, from these prophecies that John knew well, that were 
hundreds of years before Jesus came, that foretold the coming of the Messiah. These words that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke and said, when he comes, this is what it's going to be like. He's going to bring freedom to captives. He's going to open the blind eyes. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. This is what he's going to do. And Jesus takes those things and says, the things that were making you question whether I really was John, John... Remember what Isaiah said. Those are the things that verify I am who I said I am. I'm him. The things that have confused you or caused you to question, these are the very things that verify I am the Messiah. What happens next? We're moving quickly. Verse 24, as John's disciples go back to reassure him and to say he really is... (laughs) Jesus speaks to the crowd about John. Let's read from verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury and are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for them, having not been baptized by him. Jesus, in summary of what he's just said, is basically Jesus wants to be clear with them that even though John was questioning, and some of them would have overheard that questioning and Jesus' response, John was a great prophet. In fact, John was the one who had come to prepare them to meet with Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And many people there acknowledged that to be true. Yeah, They declared God to be just. Those who'd come and who had responded to John's message, who'd been baptized and who were now receiving Jesus and his message went, yes. But not everyone did, did they? The tax collectors, uh, sorry, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they rejected They rejected John out in the desert and they rejected Jesus' message now. And in light of their rejection, Jesus issues a really scathing critique of them, which we're going to read now. I mean, this is, he, he doesn't have particularly kind or gentle words to say. This is not, he's not messing around. Okay, let's read from verse 31. This is what Jesus says about those who are rejecting him. It says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? He's talking about the religious leaders who've rejected John and rejected him. He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. 
For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Basically, Jesus likens them to stroppy children. Children who don't want to join in with any of the games their friends suggest. And they want it their, all their own way. He just likens them to like petulant, spoiled brats who want it all their own way. They rejected John, who lived out in the wilderness and shunned life's comforts as he preached this message of repentance. And they were like, oh, he's crazy. Look at him out there in camel hair eating of that basic honey and locusts and just what God provides for him in the wilderness instead of eating real food. He's, oh, he's proper nuts. He must be demon-possessed. And then they reject Jesus, who's feasting with tax collectors and sinners. If he was really a holy man, he couldn't possibly associate with such people. And on both counts, they completely miss what God is doing. You with me so far? Yeah? Good. Now, on the whole, by this point, hopefully we're getting the picture. The religious leaders are pretty cross with Jesus, and they're also really confused by him. They just don't get what's going on. So what happens next, and where we're going to spend most of our time today, might seem a little bit surprising, and and this is where we need to dig in a bit. Because the very next thing we read after Knowing that about the Pharisees, we read from verse 36, is one of the Pharisees, a man called Simon, we're going to find out a bit more about, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Oh. But they didn't like the fact he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and they had nothing but bad things to say about Jesus. And now one of them invites Jesus into their house for a meal. Interesting. There may be a few reasons for this. Well, firstly, it was customary to invite a visiting rabbi uh, to a Sabbath meal after synagogue. And so perhaps Jesus had spoken. We don't get this from the text, but lots of scholars uh, suppose that perhaps Jesus had spoken in the synagogue and had been invited then back by Simon to his house. That's what you did. It's just customary. Maybe Simon had a genuine interest in what Jesus was teaching. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that he invited Jesus to his house. And then over dinner, this dramatic scene unfolds. And we're going to read it all in one chunk, and then we'll kind of come back and unpack it. So let's read together from verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him, that's Jesus, by the way, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee had invited him over, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Did you, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay. There's a lot there. Briefly, Jesus is eating. This time with a group of the religious elite instead of with tax collectors and sinners. And a woman comes in. She's in an absolute state floods of tears, and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, and then anoints them with some perfumed oil. Then Jesus tells a story about debts being forgiven, applies it to the woman and Simon the Pharisee, and then tells her she's forgiven. What on earth is going on? Like, this is, this is a captivating story, but it's slightly bizarre, isn't it? Like to our ears, we're like, Jesus is at a dinner party and out of nowhere this woman turns up, she's a bit crazy, she's crying, she does, like, wipes his feet with her hair, like, why not just find a towel? Like, what on earth is going on? This is all very strange. Well, let's find out together, shall we? So first up, we've got to get some cultural background and understanding to, to be able to get any sense of really what's happening here. Because believe it or not, First century meals like this were not a lot like your dinner parties. I don't know if you remember dinner parties. It's been a while because of COVID, but you know those things where you could have other people into your house and you're allowed to sit and eat together? You remember those? Good, weren't they? Well, anyway, this was not really anything like that, so don't worry if you can't remember them because uh, it makes no difference. Now, Simon the Pharisee had invited Jesus, but there were conventions much like there are probably lots of unwritten rules around dinner parties today. I'm far too uncultured to know them, but I'm sure there are. But he really wasn't the most attentive host. The customarily dinner host would have been greeted by a kiss from the host on arrival. We read that Simon didn't do this for Jesus. Guest sandals would have been removed and their feet washed, either before entering or while they reclined at the table. But Jesus' feet were left dirty. Dinner guests were also usually anointed with oil on their heads as a sign of kind of blessing, of favour. But Jesus was given no such welcome. He was invited by Simon, yes, but actually he was treated with contempt. Everything that would make Jesus, or would make a guest, feel welcomed and honoured 
was withheld from Jesus at this meal. Nevertheless, graciously, he took his place at the table with everyone else who, from implication, had probably been anointed with oil, had had their feet washed, was most probably greeted with a kiss, and yet Jesus took his place around the table. But what about this woman? Like, how did she even get in? I don't know, like, I've never been at a dinner party where someone just kind of bursts through the front door and, and joins spontaneously in. It just doesn't happen, right? Well, we've got to, again, understand the culture. Wealthy people's homes were generally built in a kind of square around a courtyard in the middle. And the courtyard is where a meal like this would have been held. And the gates to that courtyard were left open. And they were left open so that uninvited people from the town could come in and see what was going on. It's so they could come in and see who was there and what they were talking about. Particularly if you had a notable guest in attendance, people would just rock up and have a listen, see what's going on. Yeah, it seems very, very bizarre to us, doesn't it? Like, I can't, I can't even kind of fathom, like, why or how that worked. But I suppose, like, maybe we have to kind of think of it as the same kind of bizarre, like, voyeuristic impulse that leads people to watch celebrity reality shows on telly. You just kind of, like, you kind of get to, like, look in on what happens in their lives. I suppose this program's like the Kardashians, which is vastly popular, I guess in some ways it's like the first century equivalent. You couldn't watch them on telly, but you could hang out at their dinner party and eavesdrop on their conversation. Very strange. Given the presence of Jesus, whose reputation and popularity continued to grow. Remember, he's just healed a shed load of people when he talked to John's disciples and sent them back. That causes a bit of a buzz. There are people there. There's probably quite a crowd in attendance that evening. And they would have all seen how Simon really shunned Jesus. The dishonour he'd shown him. The contempt with which he treated him. This is actually therefore quite a tense scene. Because those people would have been observing Jesus. How's he going to respond? Like, man, if Simon treated me like that, I'd give him a piece of my mind. Like maybe they're, they're kind of expecting Jesus to like stand up and rebuke him or do something dramatic. But Jesus takes his place at the table. It's this interesting scene. It's tense. They were wondering what was going to happen next, but I would guess none of them expected this. Because out of the crowd, this woman comes forward. Out of the shadows around the edge of the courtyard, she approaches Jesus. A woman of the city. It's like doesn't mean she lived like in an apartment in London. <laughs> she was a sinner, a well-known sinner, most likely a prostitute. And whilst there would have been many there, it would have been very unusual for a woman in her situation to have dared enter the house of a Pharisee. 
for fear of public rejection, for fear of shame, for fear of actually being kicked out. Pharisees didn't associate with such people. But she came. We don't know why. We don't know her full backstory, but it it seems safe to assume, given Jesus' public ministry at that point in time, that maybe she'd heard him teaching at some point. Maybe she'd seen some of the miracles he'd worked. She'd heard him teaching about forgiveness, about the fact that forgiveness could be found in him, that he'd come to bring freedom for those in captivity to sin, that he had come to cleanse people like her, the sick who need a doctor, the poor in spirit, who recognize their need of a savior, the unrighteous who know their need of forgiveness. She didn't know how. She didn't know what Jesus would do at the cross. But she did know that in Jesus, she could be forgiven. Like the leper who was cleansed from his leprosy, that she could be cleansed from her sin, from her unrighteousness. And so she came. And everything that Simon had failed to do for Jesus, she did for him. Moved by gratitude for the grace of God in Jesus, perhaps moved also by sorrow at seeing Jesus so poorly treated by Simon. She stepped in. She sobbed. She sobbed. She sobbed. And with her tears, she washed Jesus' feet. Guys, this is an incredibly powerful scene. This raw outpouring of emotion as she's overwhelmed with the realization of her sins forgiven, of the fact that in Jesus there was forgiveness. See, she'd been carrying around the shame of her sin. She was known as someone who was a sinful person who would be shunned in a place like this. She'd carried it around with her, and with Jesus, this weight was lifted. Her sins forgiven. Conscience cleansed. Not condemned anymore. And the emotional outpouring, therefore, of just floods of tears is unsurprising, isn't it? And if you've ever experienced that kind of of weight of guilt taken off you, lifted off the unburdening of something that you've carried around with you that has just weighed on your shoulders so heavily and it's removed and just that sense of relief and release that comes. The joy, the freedom I've been moved to tears myself lots of times at this kind of realization. But one very memorable occasion, I was at a conference in Brighton and I was convicted during the service as the person was speaking from the Bible about a particular pattern of sin in my life that I'd, I'd been carrying around for some time. And I responded at the end and repented and asked God for forgiveness. Asked for him to cleanse me. And as I did, the, the dam just burst the weight of guilt that I felt the shame for the sin I'd 
committed time and time again was removed in a moment. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I sobbed tears of repentance, but at the same time tears of joy. So my guilt was removed. And this woman is doing just that as she comes to Jesus. She comes in floods of tears to Jesus' feet to wash them. Now there's, there's so much symbolic and meaningful about this moment and this passage. These slaves were commanded to wash people's feet. No slaves had been instructed to wash Jesus' feet. But this woman was commanded by no one. She came willingly out of gratitude and she placed herself in service of Jesus. She didn't come and try and take a place of honour. She came out of gratitude and took a place of service of Jesus. This response of knowing our sins forgiven, of gratitude, should result in a desire to serve Jesus. She washed his feet with her tears. And then we see this very bizarre. She proceeded to dry his feet with her hair. Now, it's not just because she didn't have a towel to hand, okay? And, and it's not just because she couldn't have used her, her clothing or something else. There's meaning there too. This was actually the most shocking bit for everyone who was watching. The crowd would have probably recoiled, gasped maybe, as she let down her hair to dry Jesus' feet. It was utterly, utterly unacceptable socially. Because for, in culture, for a woman, her hair was her glory. It was only to be let down in the presence of her husband. This was so serious that many rabbis would permit a divorce if a woman had let down her hair in the presence of a man other than her husband. But there's nothing kind of sexual or sordid about what this woman did. It was this outpouring of raw, unashamed gratitude that overflowed into service. It was, it was undignified and wholehearted. This is why it's so powerful, because her hair was considered her glory. And she took her hair, her glory, and she gave it up willingly. Her flowing locks became dirty and matted with the dust and filth from Jesus' feet. she dried them in this moment for this woman his glory and not hers was her priority she she gave up her glory for his her hair which she would have taken pride in would have been seen as something of real significance when it came to her beauty and her worth and she allowed it to become matted and dirty as she served Jesus his glory, not hers, was her priority. Because when we allow the wonder of what Christ has done for us to sink in, when we allow the joy of sins forgiven to truly dawn on us, then I want to suggest we become like this woman. We become far more consumed with his glory than our own. People who are Longing that God would be glorified. 
and not nearly so interested in their own glory. And then instead of anointing his head with oil, which was the honour he should have been shown by Simon, she anointed his feet with perfume. This again was another sign of her humility, of her gratitude, of her honouring Jesus. Now on seeing this, you'd think Simon might have been a bit convicted, wouldn't you? But instead, in his pride, he just thinks that this must prove Jesus isn't a prophet. <laughs> because, because a holy man, a real prophet, would know that she was a sinner, and he would not let a sinner touch him. Come near his feet? No way. Not if he was really a prophet. Simon completely and utterly misses it. This woman knew better than anyone else that she was a sinner as she came. But so did Jesus. Jesus knew every detail. He knew precisely who she was and what she'd done. But Jesus didn't reject her when she came to him. Instead, he received her and he redeemed her. He forgave her. And if you come to Jesus... No matter how deep your shame, how profound your sin, if you come to him, he'll forgive you. He won't reject you either. Jesus knew her sin, but he also knew Simon's thoughts. Notice that? It's like Simon said to himself, oh, if he was a prophet, he'd this. He, didn't, he was talking to himself. It's like this internal monologue. And then Jesus responds to him. Jesus knew his thoughts. And so Jesus says to Simon, straight on, like, Simon, I've got something to say to you. <laughs> and Simon, I think, I don't know what he's expecting, but he says, say it. <laughs> say it, Lord. And then Jesus proceeds to tell that story that we've just read. This parable of two people in debt, both unable to pay back their debt. One for 500 denarii and one for 50. And it's a story about Simon, the Pharisee, and about this woman. We've got a note. Both of them have a debt they can't pay. Both of them have sinned against God, and it's a debt that they cannot pay. They're insolvent. And every single one of us stands in this position before God on our own merit. Every one of us, we're unable to atone for our sin. And the size of the debt in this story isn't actually so much the point, it's the fact that they were unable to pay that's the issue. And someone who doesn't really see their need of forgiveness won't respond with gratitude. So if you don't think you have a debt to pay, or you think, oh, well, mine is so small compared with theirs, then you take a place of pride rather than gratitude. But this woman, she knew. She knew her need and she overflowed with gratitude. She knew that her sins were many, but she also knew that they were forgiven and that caused her to respond in this way.
when you realize the depth of your sin and you understand your inability to wipe the slate clean. You understand your inability to settle that debt for yourself. But you know that Jesus has done it on your behalf. You know that at the cross, he took on himself the penalty for your sin, that he wiped your slate clean, that he took it upon himself and he paid it in full on your behalf. When you understand that, when you realize that, when you allow that to to sink in to your heart, then you overflow with gratitude, with love for him. He who is forgiven much loves much. This is ongoing throughout our lives as Christians. We need to hear this, right? This isn't a one-time thing. Because the truth is, the longer we walk with Christ, the more we become aware of sin in our own lives. And if you've noticed that to be true, I would guess you probably have. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. So as we find that sin, as the motives of our heart and our attitudes are uncovered and we think, oh gosh, there I am again. Woe is me. An unclean man. There's no condemnation in Christ. Instead, there's freedom. There's freedom to be found. That means repentance. But it also means freedom. just want to say this. Guys, if there's no repentance, if there's no awareness of your sin, no seriousness about dealing with it, no desire to be right with God, if there's a, if there's a kind of happy-go-lucky, like, oh, hey, you know, never mind, I probably messed up again. If there's no repentance... There's no, I suppose, in the image of this woman, no weeping, no anointing with oil, no wiping with hair, then, guys, there's a problem. There's a problem, and it's a sign that we've either cheapened the grace of God and we just see it as license to sin. Hey, God forgives me anyway. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, I did, but it's like, hey, forgiven. Or maybe that we've become proud and self-righteous like Simon See, Simon didn't think he had much to be forgiven. He was like the one with the 50 denarii. And he was just looking at the 500 and going, wow, that's my 50. There's nothing compared with that. Hey, I'm okay. He didn't think he had much to be forgiven. Why should he be moved in gratitude? But when you walk with Christ... You have this kind of attitude. The Apostle Paul said this of himself. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Christ, this, this, the man who wrote that wrote a massive, massive chunk of what we have in our New Testament. He's one of the most prolific church planters and church leaders, missionaries we have in history ever. And he said of himself as he knew walking with Christ, but he knew the longer he did, the more it revealed in his own heart. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. 
Now, he also wrote, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah? These aren't pious and self-effacing words. No, they're the result of walking closely with Christ. As we walk with him more, then the sinful inclinations of our heart are exposed. We grow more sensitive to our own sin. Things that didn't used to bother us begin to bother us. Things that we didn't used to have a problem with doing or saying, all of a sudden we become more sensitive to. We realize and we find forgiveness. We eagerly desire to live in a way that glorifies God. And so I want to ask you as we come towards the end today, I want to ask you, have you grown cold and indifferent? Are your senses dulled when it comes to sin in your own life? Has it been some time since you even contemplated that you might need to repent? Maybe you've grown a little proud and self-righteous. It can happen so easily. How about this? Just as we think about how we might respond. See, I think for all of us, there are two ways that our reputation can get in the way of us responding to. Could have been the case for both this woman and Simon. See, for this woman, she could have easily allowed her reputation to keep her from coming to Jesus, couldn't she? She could have stayed out of the house that night for fear of rejection. Her sins were many and everybody there knew it. She could have thought, oh, there's no way. Like the, the, I, the, I won't even get close to him. And even if I do, there's no way that Jesus would forgive someone like me. There's no way. Someone who's done the kind of things I've done. You know, and everyone knows it. There's no way he could love and accept someone like me. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you can list your life. And you think, there's, there's, there's no way. If that's you, you need to know, like this woman knew clearly, that there's no one too far gone for Jesus. There is infinitely more power at the cross for forgiveness than there is capacity in you to sin. And you need to know that to be true. So come to him like this woman did. In your brokenness, in your mess, come to him and find forgiveness. Come to him and know the freedom of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed. And on the other hand, and I think maybe this is more common often in the church, we can allow our good reputation to keep us from coming to Jesus. Like Simon, we can be seen as respectable, well thought of, good moral people, maybe even leaders in the church. But if that leads you to hide your sin and to fail to confess and humbly come to Jesus, because, well, what, what will people think of me? Or, and guys, you're on dangerous ground. Because you can't out-sin God's grace. But you can fail to come and find forgiveness. And that's a grave mistake indeed. Please, please don't let your good reputation keep you from coming to repent and find forgiveness in Jesus. 
lastly, we're going to come back to sing in just a moment. Maybe Rich, if you could come back up with the guys to lead us. But lastly, tragically, sometimes those who've been around church for a long time can treat Jesus with the kind of contempt Simon did. Over time, there can be a, an over-familiarity in the way we approach Jesus and think of him. Like I said earlier, we can kind of have this like, oh, grace, oh yeah, you know, grace, I'm forgiven, it's all right. There can be a cheapening of what Christ has done for us and instead of responding with the kind of gratitude and love and service and honour that that woman displayed, instead we place ourselves like Simon in the seat of honour and we plop Jesus somewhere around the table alongside the other things in our life that are priorities that we view as important, that help us to feel good, that get us through the day. Yeah, Jesus, you know, over there somewhere, anywhere will do, just, just find your place, it's all right. Just join in with everyone else. Guys, I want to plead with you today. Don't get there. Don't ever lose the wonder of God's mercy. Don't allow yourself to grow cold to Christ's love for you. Daily, daily allow yourself to remember the wonder of his mercy. Don't ever stop reminding yourself of the hope of the gospel. Don't ever stop reminding yourself of all that he's done for you, of your, of your sins forgiven. The debt that you could not possibly hope to pay settled on your behalf that you might know freedom, that you might know love, that you might know life. I want to pray and then we're going to sing one final song.